does it mean to regenerate? The re-emergence of the concept of regeneration in our culture is a hot topic. From producers to products, legislation to certifications, celebrities to students, there's no shortage of passionate perspectives. Welcome to Regen Circle. I'm Paige Fay, and on this show, we're here to explore the re-emergence of regenerative concepts and practices and their impact on ecosystems and culture. If you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Welcome to The Circle. Welcome to Regen Circle today. I'm so excited to have our guest today, Joshua Hughes, on the show. And Joshua is founder of both Black Sheep Collective as well as Rewild Organics. And he lives currently in Costa Rica um, on his regenerative community development. And um, I'm excited to talk to him today. Joshua, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me here, Paige. This is great. It might be a little loud. We had a little, we had six inches of rain last night, so the creeks are flowing. But I hope you all can hear me. Maybe start by telling us where in Costa Rica you are. Tell us about the place that you are and its meaning to you. I'm in a region. Uh, it's called Puriscal. It's kind of the Pacific slopes, about the middle of the country, uh, about an hour from the beach. This is only about ten miles here, but it's an hour because there's the roads weave and wind through the mountains and, and river valleys. Uh, I've been here since 2006. I uh, started our project. This area was very much clear cut from stem to stern in, the, in like the 50s and the 60s. So we moved to an area that was very, very much in need of of help and and leverage leverage to be used to try and fix things. And um, it's in short order, which is about 17, 18 years now. Uh, I'll we'll send some photos. People can look maybe in the comments uh, or section or something, and like we can show people what's happened here. There's now millions of trees surrounding me. A lot of rain, a lot of food, a lot of birds. So I'm in, a, I'm in an area that was a cloud forest not long ago um, and is on its way back to becoming that now with engagement from neighbors and, and big organizations and governments. And it's been, mm -hmm. a, been a fun adventure here. But I'm in an area called ba uh, Lanas on the Tulin River. Beautiful. I've driven through some of the cloud forests in Costa Rica, and they're absolutely spectacular. So I'm glad you're bringing, bringing some of them back. Um, what inspired you to move down to Costa Rica in 2006? I was very activated in trying to help forests um, do forestry activism in Oregon, and I was very activated in trying to bring awareness to... Uh, I'm an anti-war activist through and through, and I was getting pepper sprayed a lot trying to affect change in Oregon. And when I tried to protect a river or a, a stand of trees, I... I felt the blunt end of like bad ideas, whether that was pepper spray or being zip tied uh, in the back of a car or whatever. So I, I really needed to do something where I could collaborate more with my greater community and government. And Costa Rica is in a position where they're putting a lot of money and time into their, in where their mouth is on being a green country, on being a peaceful nation. And I chose Costa Rica mostly for those reasons. But as I, as I researched here, it's a very peaceful culture. Um, it's eternally spring, like summer every morning, even when it's raining in the afternoons. I just got out of the spring-fed swimming pool with the best water in the world, no chemicals. So I, I picked a spot that had amazing water and that needed help. Um, everything around me had been clear-cut uh, 60 years ago, and it really needed love. Um, there are parts of Costa Rica that already have very beautiful national parks, and um, that part's kind of being done, the protecting what's standing. But I wanted to be engaged in, in like bringing back what had been left behind, or as smart people have said, uh, 
areas like this were kind of like sacrifice zones for big business. And when the cattle, the cattle moved into this area as kind of the last straw and because uh, they, they couldn't produce food anymore on these steep hills as they had eroded so much. So I chose this area because I wanted to, I wanted to see what could happen if we leaned in in a place that needed it. And there's a very peaceful and progressive government here that's trying. So, so I chose Costa Rica. Yeah. And the name of your property is Finca Verde Energia Pacifica. Do I have that right? Yep. Verde Energia Pacifica is our, is our main community space. Uh, and then we have a farm of, that we purchased above us called Shangrilanis. And then we have another farm where we do most of our bigger production called Enamorado Cacao Collective. And that was these, this area was very much into cacao production 40, 50 years ago, but they had a, they had a very bad blight. A, a, a bacteria came through and a fungus and funguses and took out all the cacao production in Costa Rica. So we're re-engaging in cacao production in these farms. And so we, we honor those with the Enamorado Cacao Collective is where we're producing most of our turmeric, ginger, black pepper, stuff like that. So our three little projects here are all tethered together. We have about 60, 65 people that own it together between uh, people from abroad and our employees locally that own it with us. That's beautiful. I want to dive into the community element more in a little bit, but I want to just kind of lay the foundation of your business. And, you know, I first started following you with, with Black Sheep Collective and, and the work you were doing there. And then you found the need to expand to actually produce a product and create a supply chain and a supply shed within Costa Rica. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about, about that journey and how you, you saw that need and, and sought to fulfill it. Well, our, we started our first farm, Verdenahia, in 2006, and it was really a reforestation effort, principally at first, so we could bring back soil. Um, as that happened, the slow, the slow inputs we got to keep putting in and the lessons I learned in the first several years, um, we started tackling those physical challenges on the ground, getting soil back, getting water to not just wash everything away, having a nice tree canopy coverage in areas and protecting, uh, protecting the trees and plants that we wanted to produce. And, uh, as we learned that, we ran into the problems that most small farmers are dealing with in, in this country and in a lot of the world, which is the lack of infrastructure, even if you have a great space and you can be productive. So uh, several years ago, Black Sheep was formed to kind of formalize the response on the supply chain level, um, What everything we needed from processing uh, closer to home, experts and things to learn what to do and how to process and make value-added goods out of these things, being a commodity producer in the like, quote unquote global south or developing world, whatever you want to put it, like it you make nothing. You, you, you make almost nothing. It's a, it's something that most people are getting away from. Like food production is in trouble, actually. Most of the most of the farmers, even in the US, are like over 60 now on average. So, you know, we it, it, it wasn't that attractive for like a lot of young people to get engaged in. So, you know, uh, Black Sheep was that response to what we were lacking too in our little farm projects in our little village. So that Black Sheep was made to give us the tools and some of the investment and take some of the risk off of this from the frontline farmer. Um, we put a lot of the burden of fixing these old problems that came from giant companies that came and like sucked the energy out of this area. Uh, and then we're trying to fix it as little small little you know developments or small little projects. So Black Sheep is helping do that, lessening the risk on the frontline farmer. And then we developed Rewild Organics, which is where we are making our value-added goods so that the farmers in our region would have access to making some actual money and making some actual surplus from their production instead of just selling things for the, the lowest rock-bottom world price. So that's where Black Sheep and Rewild Organics have been formed to 
to fill in a bunch of the gaps between farmers in our situation, which is frankly billions of people maybe in the world or in kind of our situation on a long dirt road in a country that doesn't have a good infrastructure. Um, so yeah, this is this is our response to that. And it's been a, a big learning curve, but we had the time to do it. I did my projects on the ground without without going into debt. We did it piece, we did a lot of experiments, little bits at a time. And we uh, what I thought of as just fun experiments is learning was kind of de-risking the, the big steps we needed to take in the future. So black sheep is is uh, has born out of that. Yeah. It's, you know, you bring up commodity pricing and it's something that we've been diving deeper into. And especially within the U.S., you know, farmers really don't have a way to survive off of commodity price goods. The only way they're sort of surviving is through subsidies. And, you know, and that just continues to, you know, the different inputs they're required to use and crop insurance continues to degrade. the So it's a whole system. Right. And I think what's interesting in being in Costa Rica and being outside of that system is you say, okay well, how can we. How can we create a value add good? You know, what does the market desire to to create that value, and so that we can be paid a fair wage? And then, you know, how do we bring in other financing that helps us regenerate the land and improve soil health? Because adding that cost onto a startup or onto a onto a product isn't really feasible in the early in the early years. Um, and so, I think it's it's a really beautiful model. You've sort of created an ecosystem of your own financing and and value add goods, and that's that's really unique in the space. Yeah, well, and Costa Rica has a, has taught me a lot because they're a very co op oriented country. But the co ops have been really oriented around a few of the bigger export products, and that's been there's a lot of downward pressure on the prices for that too. So like, there's there's great co ops here for coffee and and pineapples and bananas, but those are frankly, also heavily sprayed crops that are, you know, Costa Rica uses more chemicals than any other country in the world per hectare for agriculture, more than China, several times more than the U.S. And it's not because we're, we're consuming so much here. It's because the big coffee, banana and pineapple companies are don't really they're absentee owners. They don't really care about what's left in the wake here. I guess you could feel and feel that all the time. My neighbors are getting things like uh, getting cancer in areas where they used to live to be 110. So it's a, it's very real challenge here to even want to get people back. People even want to step back into farming because it hasn't been a good model for a long time. But the, the cooperative model has taught me a lot. Is what I was getting at. So I'm, I'm, I'm really I really latched on to what they were doing to pull each other up together and doing that in a much smaller way because the subsidy farming doesn't really work for small farmers. We don't get any subsidy down here, so we have to figure out how to make it on our own. And it doesn't just mean value adding like the crop you think you're growing. I'm a turmeric farmer. I grow turmeric. Uh, that's putting uh, a lot of pressure, pressure on like one, on, like, one item. item. We were in agroforestry and a soil growing. growing. I'm a soil growing farm. farm. I've been spending, spending most of my first decade and a half here was, was growing, growing the soil. soil. It was mostly gone, gone from the 20 feet of rain we were getting with no canopy. So, you know, being soil farmers now, I've learned to subsidize my own farm by doing things like putting trees that grow quickly that are pioneer species that will be like furniture and and uh, hot homes around my region and that helps subsidize my shorter term challenges with becoming a regenerative farm so we have to figure out how to subsidize ourselves right yeah you're creating your own economic model and you're also doing developing processing capabilities in country as well right yeah we've been working with some local processors that have been stepping up and like becoming certified organic and and getting to the point where we can even like all the lovely work you put into the soil and into the product and into this amazing flavored good. And then when it wants to go to another country that you like or get sent to the market, it, it goes to a place that doesn't treat it with the same kind of care. 
um, or it gets blended in with products that are not as yummy or as chemical free. So we were in a position as most small farmers here is that's one of the missing infrastructure pieces is how do you process things? How do you stabilize your goods? How do you stabilize your surplus that you get in a place like this? Because we get so much rain and so much sun, uh, but it, that doesn't do you much good if the fruit's on the ground rotting. So um, it, it, it's a pivotal part of this is figuring out how to invest in these localized cooperative level uh, processing. So surplus to make it to market and high quality can be maintained because it doesn't have to travel halfway around the world before it starts getting processed, which tends to mean they pick the fruit green and early so it can make it to China and back uh, before you consume it. You know, there's nothing like a pineapple picked at the right moment. There's nothing like it. Uh, you get pineapple in the U.S. I thought I didn't like pineapples as a kid because they were picking. I didn't know they were picking them a month early so they could ship them up to me. I get down here and I get a fresh pineapple. It's like the best thing I've ever done for myself, you know, or bananas here. When you get a banana that's picked at the right time, there's nothing like it. So I, I, we, our goal is so that people could like taste the food the way it's supposed to be. Um, and that they would make food so much more fun, much the way people in the U.S. already love things like CSAs, community supported agriculture. We try to do that. And we, we love it once we get a hold of a real tomato. If you've only ever had like a cheap Walmart tomato and then one day you have a co-op tomato, you're like, oh, that's it, that's it. That's what tomatoes taste like. Nutrient. Same thing with pineapples, same things with turmeric. I want you to taste that nutrients. I want all the sugars and phytonutrients to develop on the plant like they should. But that requires a vehicle coming out here at the right moment or whatever and getting it as close as possible to a place to eliminate like the water out of that pineapple. Because right now, if I ship a pineapple, it has to go nine hours one way before it can get dried. That's like a pineapple probably is 95% water. I'm transporting a lot of water around. So that, you know, that makes small projects, very small farms, very difficult or impossible to compete, actually. So okay. like, that, this is a, it, if it was just as romantic, if we just had like a, if all we had to do was switch over the way we treat soil, it would be a much easier challenge to become a regenerative food system world. But we have to we have to rebuild a parallel infrastructure that like helps plants get dealt with closer to home. Right. I want to I want to dive into sort of your thoughts on and the definition your definition of regenerative in a minute. But first, I'd love as we're talking about the community system you're developing, like what are a couple of the things that you've learned that have been the most beneficial in developing the system, and, and what are the really challenging pain points in in developing a community oriented local fooding system, which is essentially what you're developing. I'd say the, the thing that well, that doesn't make us different, but what, what makes it what's making it click and work for us is that I moved here. I was a recycler in my life. I wasn't a farmer. So I didn't come at this from like having to switch a conventional farm over to organic or regenerative. That's a whole other challenge. Um, I came at this from I, I grew up in the recycling world. I started in a wrecking yard as a kid. We had a family wrecking yard, you know, dealing with what people call garbage, but it was all pretty much still good. So we got that back into the world of upcycle. upcycle. I was in paper and plastics later. And, and then when I came down here, I realized I was upcycling what, what had been sacrificed farmland. Um, so my my approach to this came, you know, I came very patiently to the game. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I, I came here to learn from my neighbors. I didn't come here to teach them anything day one. I would have not, I would have very little to teach them anyway then other than maybe some cultural exchange. So the cultural exchange was what we did lean on. I moved here with my daughter and my ex-partner and my parents and my dozens of my friends and family own this 
community space together. So I think the most important part of the regenerative process here, it wasn't the science of how much bacteria is in the soil or how much, that wasn't the first thing. The first thing was building neighbors, a neighborhood back and tying together with people in a way that we're in this together, um, building trust, uh, raising children together. These things made my, have made my experience much not only more not only more successful but more genuine and more from my neighbors it's a from my neighbors out perspective um and i i'm i'm blessed that i didn't know too much about farming i had lots of experts around me and i brought friends in that were great at this and we started doing fun experiments and learning what would work here um and that became very important as as it started to work but um my attitude about planting trees while we discussed all this, like I, I think in the beginning, as we were talking about the world's problems and talking about the soil's quality, and as people would come through and visit, we ended up with a kind of, I wouldn't call it like volunteerism that helped come and plant the forest with us here. I figured we might as well talk about this while, while we talk about this, we might as well plant trees. And I, I unknowingly was making sure that 15 years later, I had an amazing like surplus pump of an agroforestry farm. So I, the success and what I really learned early was build neighborhood first. Think about this as a group human activity. This isn't just a business. And if it was just a business, um, I don't. I think it's missing. If it's just the farming part, if you just talk about regenerative ag, um, or yeah, regenerative ag as the soil and what we're doing, the plant itself, we can miss the point that our neighbors are still suffering and that it won't be resilient. So the resiliency came first for me. Build that. Um, build trust. I moved to a country that wasn't where I was from. So I had to do, it was extra trust building and language learning and all that stuff. So I, I'm, I'm a little blessed there though. Cause if I was a farmer day one, I may have been just totally disillusioned by all of it and the challenge, <laughs> but coming at it as like a wanting to fix forests and build community first, that led to an amazing surplus. Literally the forests are now creating so much biodiversity in my topsoil that I'm, and and everything from shade to more consistent rain and springs that are coming back. Um, that's all now paying off in, in beautifully. Uh, but it did require the patience and the, the learning this local ecosystem. And it also required my neighbors because of climate change. We're all relearning what it means to be in a changed planet. It's not just like climate change in the future. Here it was deforested. The rain patterns had shifted. The springs had dried up. Climate change wasn't an abstraction for somebody here where it's just like, I think a glacier's melting. It was like no drinking water in the springs your families had used for generations. The roads were eroding. So climate change here really felt like, not secondary, but that the climate change part's a, a byproduct, a good byproduct, a positive feedback loop that comes out of doing local land-based restoration so mm -hmm. and community restoration so that people don't have to go and cut it down in 15 years if they're poor. Uh, so like we need to make sure that these ideas last and i was a student of geopolitics and you know getting pepper sprayed a lot i didn't i didn't want to i didn't want to end up in a i wanted solutions that really worked i had felt what it meant to like resist the bad ideas with my body and with my heart and it's way funner to even fail on a type of tree you plant that doesn't work than getting pepper sprayed so I, i'd say those successes were were very important, like finding lots of little yeses and being willing to go through. And and I didn't have to get into debt because I did this in a model where my community owns it together. So we had the time uh, and the patience not to not to have any one entity take all this risk or interest and take it out of it. So 
the community interest came first. None of it's gone to pay interest payments. That was a huge part of getting the time to figure this out. That's beautiful. And something, you know, there's a couple pieces, you know, the social and communal aspect of creating, you know, of regenerating a community. Um, and the other piece is setting yourself up financially in a model where you had the ability to move laterally and, and move slowly and make tests and understand and work with the landscape and the ecology and the social ecology. And that's something that we've been doing a lot of thinking about, you know, after spending, you know, the last 12 years working with food businesses, there's really this pipeline where there's, you know, you're not profitable until you sell. And so there's downward pressure on your investors, you know, to sell. And I think that there's, there's a new narrative emerging. And I've been really inspired by some colleagues who have figured out how to move through their startups differently and so that they are more profitable from the beginning um, and, and they're maybe you know looking to resource within themselves and within their own community. Um, and, and I think that that's you know, hitting on both the community and the financial elements of building a regenerative business. That's not what we talk about. You know, the, the conversation is so dominated by, by soil health and carbon sequestration and climate change, which are incredibly important. But again, those are the sort of immediate financial vehicles. Um, and if we're not doing those other foundational pieces, we sort of lack a more holistic definition of regenerative. When we forget about the people, I mean, like people kind of romanticize history as like this organic history before petroleum, but chattel slavery was organic. Like that's that's heavy to think about, but like, you know, organic's not nearly enough. The idea of just the soil being healthy, it hasn't worked out in history a lot because people suffered massively under that yoke, even when it was organic completely. So it's important we take it here or we're missing the whole point, I think. We're just like, we're only worrying about the consumer at that point, if it's just the soil health or just the banana, even if it's just the taste. That is really down to like the privileged having access to those things and other people going and working on it. So I, 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 as you said that I had, I had the privilege uh, to come and take time and patience to do this. This isn't something my neighbors could do. They had to apply poison because they had to succeed that month to eat that month. I, I put myself in a position to take a decade off um, and come and live like this. Uh, and I also choose to live in a way that's very simple. So I've lived for a couple thousand dollars a year, most of my adult life now, living in the jungle here with my friends in a cooperative model. So, you know, I, I, it was sac sacrifice, but not really. I've, I've, I've been doing fine <laughs> without making a lot of money. So uh, getting getting to that that point you were making, though, about figuring out how to make things profitable without just selling them. If you're building co-ops co -ops and long-term soil, on a piece of land that a community owns, there's there's not really just this awesome easy exit you can make and sell it to some big investor because you live there, your community's there, it is yours. And the way it works is you're not just going to be an employee as a local farmer. You wanted to be a part of this value chain. So where I'm at, like the idea of just flipping businesses, that that doesn't work so much with like forestry land and like these longer term things. It it may for like the middle person, but for the neighbors, that's that's kind of back to the absentee owner model. And I. I don't see that working. Uh, it hasn't worked so far. So, you know, when, if you're going into this without exit strategy on your mind, you have to act, you have to actually figure out what are we going to do to make money and keep making money? Right. How and are we going to keep producing surplus? Right. And as a component of that, have you thought about or have you monetized the carbon that you've put into your soil? Has that been something you've considered doing as a, as a way of creating additional income for your business? So we were, I was very let down by the, the 
so far by what it meant to do that. Like the companies that wanted to help us and even the local government programs and stuff, it'd be like worked out to about $30 an acre is what they'd pay you. And uh, somebody here could keep raising a cow on that acre and make a few hundred dollars every every year. So it was so low that it it wasn't something that's like replicatable for most of my neighbors. It's really only something that's worth it for somebody who owns large bits of land. So most of those systems have been set up for large landholders. The, the numbers are small enough where it only works for them. Uh, so we we have an amazing amount of carbon stored in our soil now, and I've got several different large-scale tests now done in my region that show, and we, I, mean, I can show you what happens after 15 years, another farm we have a lot after 10, another one after six, and we're storing a lot of carbon. And when the right programs come along, we're, we're all about it. But so far, it, honestly, it hasn't been set up to like be worth more for the farmer than, than, uh, than just what they've been doing. And that's, that's something we need to digest. Those programs, maybe they would work, but they're not, they're not going to work if the, if the people on the ground have to, have to cut it down in 15 years, which is what's been happening in a lot of those bigger programs. Right. But they, and as the, as the agencies go back and look, they're like, where are the trees? Well, you didn't pay anyone enough to actually do this. You wanted to feel good about it. You counted the trees you put in the ground, then you walk away. Those programs don't make me happy. So I've been not anti, but just waiting for the right attitude from those bigger companies and from those governments. Yeah. It seems to be happening. There seems to be because there's been so many failures at scale um, or, or frankly, 10 different organizations counting the same tree as one. Or in Costa Rica, they even counted the monoculture palm fields as, as reforestation. So it's like chemical bass and they cut the jungle down to put it in and then they get to count that as reforestation. So that's, it's not been impressive to me. Um, I'm, I hope someone listening is, is a part of a great program that is working and is thinking these things through and, and we can join up and we can inc incorporate that and help our neighbors more and help our farms subsidize ourselves a bit with that. Yeah. But the, the, but the, but the climate change thing here is actually pretty immediate, relatively immediate because we have this microclimate thing going on here in Costa Rica. And when a valley has trees in it that was deforested 10 years ago and they're back, I'm getting consistent rain again. Like farming's easier. Like I'm subsidizing my future by planting those trees, whether or not I'm getting a nickel for the carbon they store. And that carbon they're storing, I get to like take back as a vegetable too. Because you know transitions into a vegetable here if you if you're a farmer doing carbon as well. So I'm uh I haven't been impressed yet. I've had a few com programs come through, but nothing's been enough. I think it's very, very well put. I mean, there's there's plenty of of, of criticisms of the carbon market, and um, I I don't disagree with many of them. I, you know, I am working with a couple companies that are changing that and have friends that are trying to do things differently. I, I was recently inspired by some guys speaking about Australia's model, and Australia's model is government regulated, which I don't necessarily think is the right thing for the U.S. We have a very different government than they do over there, but that has allowed the price of carbon and the quality regulation to shift and so that you can you know these people they were working on slightly larger pieces of land but not massive and they were able to create a, a substantial living um, just off of rotational grazing and and the carbon that that sequestered without yeah. even you know and so I think that that you know um, it's important to keep developing those markets because I think it is another pathway to avoid to avoid selling. You know, it's another way to then, if you do it right, um, to build value into the long-term health of, of the ecosystem. If I was in a place with 
pasture land, I, I would have a little different attitude because you can do it different. Costa Rica should not have like the grazing cattle. So we're dealing with like really needing to replace every, every hill that's steeper than about this should just be forests. And there's a lot of it around me. We're like Switzerland without the snow in my region is very steep and it's all gone and cows are like traversing every inch. But it, so it's, I, you know, you can't, it's a little different here. I, I would, I would be more excited about it in larger scale grazing actually. Um, but yeah, no, I need, I need your friends to keep succeeding and keep figuring out and have them come talk to us and come talk to our neighbors and let's like customize programs that work in these different types of scenarios yeah. um, and in places where people don't have any, they have no subsidy to stop making money on that piece of land today, like to slow it down. Like we got to figure out how to load that up front a little bit more for them. Even maybe we can take risk in the U S with the money more and give the farmers more of it up front so they can actually afford to do the work. That's another, yeah, and it has to be just like any regenerative system. It has to be specific to that ecology. You know, how you sequester carbon in the Great Plains area is completely different from a tropical rainforest like where you are. And um, so I want to I want to transition because when we were talking about this conversation, we were sort of brainstorming. You brought up this idea of romanticizing the regenerative homestead. And I felt like that was such a relevant um topic for a lot of people, you know, during the pandemic, I think we saw, I don't know the exact numbers, but we saw way more people transition from urban areas and attempt to homestead. Um, You know, I see it or hear about it every single day in some form or another. Um, You see a lot of failures. There's definitely some successes. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this and what you've learned over the past, you know, 16, 17 years. So I had a like a lot of people sitting around talking about doing these things in the early 2000s. And we started experiencing like global wars pretty in our face in the, after 9-11 and stuff. And it, so there's a lot of those conversations were happening then, very much like during the pandemic, people really wanting to shift, especially if they're already really conscious about the environment, they're really conscious about petroleum use, you know? And getting, getting into this, um, good segue for the petroleum, a barrel of oil, 42 gallons, a barrel of oil, and we use 90 million of them every day in the world. Every day, 90 million barrels. Uh, that's not just because we want to use oil. It's because each one of those barrels has 11 years of your manpower in it. 11 years of work in that one barrel of oil. When you want to be a regenerative homesteader, <laughs> you better digest those kind of things. That energy still has to come from somewhere. It tends to come from your body. It comes from being up at the crack of dawn and never stop working, or it comes from, or it comes from thinking differently and building community-wide programs. But that that takes real time. So the the if if many many people either were during COVID maybe having running running this direction out of a little fear, um, or out of this romantic view, either one of those, you're going to find the real work in this. And this this there's a lot of reward for it. You know, you don't have to go to the gym anymore. You you know it's it's a you're going to get it with your shovel and your machete and your chainsaw and you know you're going to get your exercise so the these things better be more than just romantic to us that stuff wears off just like any relationship you it's great in that romantic period and and it can be great with people that you are or people or projects that you're totally not compatible with for a while still so i say be be ready to really dive deep into what it's going to take to do this don't be afraid to take the steps but I, I really want people to to listen to the wisdom of people that have been doing it so that we don't just go and waste energy and throw money at developments that never go anywhere or 
or end up rooting or transitioning our lives too much. A lot of people have a very much a, an, an or in their life when they do this. And that permaculture has taught me to use the word and instead of or more. So I would say people should really start transitioning beyond the romance into the real work that's coming for them when they do this. Now, there's a huge payoff at the end with this once you create self, you know, feedback loops, positive feedback loops. But there's a t- there's a time before that comes, especially when you start the way we did with a with a piece of land that was completely denuded. Um, it it took several years to get to a point where it, it felt like, oh, there's fruit finally, you know, or whatever. So I want I, I don't want people not to do this, but I also want people to take these steps with the full knowledge that it better be. You should get into the reality base mindset a little bit too. Um, and there's a ton of knowledge to gain out there. And before buying a piece of land, the land owning a piece of land before you have the knowledge is a little cart before the horse if you're not if you're not ready for that. <laughs> so I'd say right now, if you're if you're sitting in an office somewhere and your dream is regenerative ag and you like your first big like hurdle would be I don't have enough money to get a piece of land. Don't even start there. Start by going and volunteering at a farm. Start by joining a CSA. Start by learning about the deeper parts of this that aren't just the like romance of me getting to go live off grid. I've had friends that moved to farms in the U.S. farmlands and they get out and they left the city and they thought they're going to have clean, beautiful air. And the first day, like crop dusters fly over their neighbor's farm and bathe them in, in pesticides. So, you know, it's it's not all romantic getting out into the farming community. The, Costa Rica has this view itself of being like this totally green country. It also uses the most chemicals of any country per meter. So there's duality even on these spots that are some of the most beautiful places in the world. So I want people to be ready to take those steps and they should probably think more about what they're learning rather than putting this big thing in front of them where they have to get a million bucks first to own this piece of land and start doing things. You could be halfway ready before you even buy a piece of land. Or even more creatively, maybe you work with people that need you and all of a sudden you're getting a co-op of someone else's creation and you're you're doing this without those big roadblocks in front of you. So I think I think we should we should start thinking about this as a very it's not just homesteading anymore. We're 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 practicing this the new way that things eventually must go. Like we must get into regenerating the planet if we want animals as in wildlife and water. We know we I think we both know this pretty well. Like we there's a lot this must happen. Being the pioneers for that though is terribly risky. And, it, and not, not that we don't need to do it, but the you know pioneering, and that's that's a weird word to use. That can sound a little colonialist, but but pioneers get the the brunt of the the frontier. They get the arrows. They get they get the first you know they get the pain. So we need to we need to realize that it's we don't need to reinvent a lot of these wheels. A lot of people have been at this for a while. Let's find them. Let's learn from them. Let's collaborate, and it'll stay romantic that way because we won't jump into something where we feel so inadequate so quickly. I grew up like a redneck. So me getting out here to the middle of nowhere and having to like chainsaw my way to home sometimes through landslides and four wheel drive or whatever, it was kind of second nature for me. Half of my friends are from big cities, a few months of that and they were done <laughs> or even one time. So uh, I, I recommend finding, finding a crew too. Don't do this alone. This yeah. is almost impossible alone. Humans aren't supposed to do almost anything alone if you go back far enough in our evolutionary trends, only a couple couple of years we've had credit cards. I mean, we'll call a plumber when we need something done. Uh, <laughs> I need to have a community that's strong enough that the plumber from next door will come help me 
without a credit card, you know, and we, we better be friends. So yeah. I, you know, or I better be friends with people who know what they're doing. So I'd say, don't put it all on yourself, put it on the community because that's all that's ever actually worked for humans is doing things together. It's even why we have language so we can hunt together. And, you know, we're not supposed to compete for food, we're supposed to work together for it. So I, uh, I would say that's not taking away the romance, but getting into sustainable romance, like you do when you get married and you try really hard, or when you have a child, you, you, you try and keep that up forever because, you know, you hopefully it lasts forever. Hopefully mm -hmm. these things last forever too. And hopefully what we build, if we do have to change because life is more and than or, um, that we've built resilient systems that aren't personality-based yeah. or ego-based. And most of the communities I've seen fail that have tried to do this is because it's really personality-based. The founder is like something special or some, had something to give. And then, you know, when they're, when they can't do it anymore, their kids don't do it anymore. It's kind of peters out. Not that it wasn't important though, either, by the way, beautiful lessons in that, yeah. you know, we learn from other people's mistakes, hopefully. I want to maintain the romance. I still have romance with all this. I'm still walking around meeting new birds that I've never seen before 17 years in. Just did today again. And it, it hits me on that like deep love soul space. But, but it, you know, there's been a lot of blisters and I've had some tragedies because when you're off grid on the front line, Ambulances, ambulances don't come in five, five seconds, seconds like they do in a big city either. So, you know, the yeah, romance feels the way when maybe a young person dies or yeah. something like that's very real. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's you, you have great points. One of the things you brought up two things that I that I want to circle back to. But one is is this concept of, of heroes, you know, and we've sort of been in this era of the hero archetype, like the hero's journey and, and illuminating these these individuals and these heroes of, of industry or of art or whatever it is. And, you know, at least in my learning, um, regenerative systems aren't built off of heroes. You know, whenever we fetishize or uplift a, a singular individual, we really lose the essence of what it is to build a regenerative system to be one of the whole. Um, and for everyone to have to have their individual place, and and so I think you bring up a really good point, and and I always find a little bit of irony in um, in sort of the heroes of the regenerative movement, and not that they're not doing amazing work, but I think it's been our nature in this epoch of time to to build that, and I think there's really something to learn from that um, hero founder, whatever it is, archetype taking a step down, taking a step back and being a part of a circle of people that all have their individual, you know, incredible skill sets that are a part of the whole and shine in different ways. Um, and so I think it's, you know, you illuminated that. perfectly said. Yeah. And if you want it to be generational, it can't be. Even if it's perfect, well, that person's there. If you want it to last, a lot of communities stop at the kids. They don't go on. And it, it, that's a that's telling. So that's perfectly put. The other thing I want to hit on that's a little bit more practical, and it's something I've been thinking about because, you know, um, I took some time. I've I've been nomadic for a lot of my life. My family are nomads and travelers, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. I've gotten to see a lot of cultures and understand a lot of different ways of being. Um, but it also... Um, is challenging to, to build a community or truly to have a relationship with land um, in a really deep way when you move around so much. And, and one of the things I've thought about and I've seen with other people that pick your homestead is like, pick the ecology and, and the biome and the bioregion that you're choosing well. Really think about that because especially mm -hmm. when you're thinking about homesteading or building a community, 
you know, technically the type of farming that you're going to do there and how you're going to make a living, how you're going to feed yourselves is going to change very drastically. How the climate is going to be affected over these, the type of community, the, the cultural implications, um, the governmental implications. And I'm, I'm curious, like if there was anything, you know, I believe you came from Oregon. Do I have that right? Or was it different, which is beautiful Pacific Northwest. Um, also, you know, a lot of rain and, and a lot of water and a lot of forest, but culturally very different. From, from Costa Rica and even ecologically quite different. And so I'm curious like if you had advice for people or if you talked to people when you were learning and you were thinking about the place you wanted to be in, how can people that are thinking about homesteading really understand the type of ecology that they want to step into? Yeah, it was a big, lot to unpack there. But you, one thing that really stood out for me that you, you said there was like, I, I had had it politically with my homeland. I was in a position where I was like, I was getting pepper sprayed or I was out protesting. I was spending a lot of my time running into like my local government in a bad way. <laughs> I, I, that was a primary part of how I decided to be. And I would have loved it if I could do a project, could have done a project in the place that I was born and raised. It would have been culturally easier in ways or whatever. But um, I chose Costa Rica because it was a place that didn't have a military. So I like, I was really leaning in on like on the peace, peace initiative in my life and wanting to be a part of a culture that didn't do that. So for me, it was very important, but I have about 60, 70 owners of three farms together here and they all do it for different reasons. We've all done, we have unity, but I don't like uniformity. I'm big on unity, not big on uniformity. So my, and what I picked and why I picked this is different, wildly different than most of the co-op members that are here with me playing. Um, but for me, that was very important that I could like pay taxes with my heart instead of knowing that my tax dollars were going to build weapons. So mm -hmm. I chose a place in the world that is one of the few places that doesn't do that. Uh, I don't want everybody to flood here and live in this little country. It's tiny. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know. I wish I, I wish I had, I wish everybody had more options when it came to that ideal. <laughs> um, when it came to what I was going to grow or do that for me came out of learning what was realistic from that area and what was realistic in the climate changing world. Um, and that took some time to figure out if I thought I knew what I was doing agriculturally day one, I would have failed and left pretty fast. <laughs> so I would say the, what I said earlier was maybe the most important thing. We should all get into growing soil and then we're going to see what comes out of that. So the culture that's going to come out of the soil, the plant culture I'm going to have is going to be probably wildly different than what the, markets have already chosen from that part of the world because those those decisions are made for a lot of reasons um that aren't very human or life-based you know so yeah for me i was very open to what would come after i chose my community first and uh something else is uh i didn't move here and start a community i moved to a small farming village um and i think there's a lot of people especially maybe from the more new agey left that like come and do these things and think we're starting a community from scratch. And that's like the big C community instead of just like, Hey, we're part of a community. So I, I've kind of dropped that word from my life so much lately and more, I, I, I live in a neighborhood and we build community in that neighborhood and every day as we make relationships. So I, uh, I really, I, I think pick a place where you can have some neighbors you can talk with. And be better yourself. If you are in a place in a lot of farm areas, maybe aren't politically 
most of the farmlands of this of the U.S. of these areas aren't like in line with me politically, frankly. So moving to those areas, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick out. I'm gonna have some tough times culturally sometimes. Uh, so I've had to take big, deep reflections and steps and be willing to be a neighbor first and not think I have to have like everything in line with this person to be a community member with. We live on the same street. We drink the same water. That makes us a community. It's very important. And and I and especially when you're moving to a country like that you're not from, to not, if you come into it with the wrong attitude on that, you can quickly become a neo-colonialist and, and, and or a, a fortress style uh, regenerative project instead of a community out style project. Yeah, I don't know if the word fortress and regenerative should ever be used in the same sentence, but I get, I get your, I get your well, meaning. Well, a, a lot of the, a lot of the conservation going on out there is fortress conservation. It's building walls around places where trees go and humans don't get to play anymore. We do the same kind of thing if we come into these things and be like, hey, I could buy 10,000 acres in this country so cheap or whatever. Are we pushing out like the neighbors that live there already that are making food on that or bar, you know? And if we are, make sure you don't. Make sure that you collaborate immediately and don't become like a fenced off thing. Uh, or you will just be a separate entity in this greater community. And I, I moved here to be a part of my neighborhood. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And um, as, we, as we wrap up today, I'd love to hear what your definition of regenerative is at this point in time, at this point in your life. Well, in, perm in permaculture, we talk about like the ethics we use. There's really, in permaculture, it's so different from place to place, community to community. It's not like a model that can be laid over everything. So, but if we do good people care, good earth care, and a good fair share, it tends to work. And I know the word fair can bother some people, but maybe just, maybe I should use the word just instead. Um, so I, I stick to a, a couple of basic ethics, and that includes how I'm gonna treat bacteria under the soil, the water, the way that that water I know is flowing down downstream into someone else's drinking water, that you know, there's always somebody, someone's either going to pee in your water, or you're going to pee in someone else's. Like you got to, we got to make sure you're not doing those things. Uh, so for me, regenerative ag, regenerative business is going to be coming to terms with ethics in a deep way, and thinking about long-term effects uh, more. Now we can easily get into progress traps, even with that idea, if we start thinking regenerative too small. So if regenerative can include the people, the animals, the future, and deep consideration of the past, I think we're going to get there. Um, and and it isn't we don't put it in such a small box that people can't do it anywhere either. I need regenerative lawyers in New York right now to start being regenerative in the way they do their business, in the way they take clients. I need regenerative politicians. I need regenerative artists like it's it, we're not all if we think regeneration is just for the farmers i think a lot of us are going to forget our part so we need to make our businesses that way and that's going to mean our businesses being owned by the employees it's going to mean it's going to be mean more upward mobility for everybody it's going to mean you know more opportunities for uh listening to the youth and what the new things that are coming along not being so stuck on what's just profitable for the last 40 or 50 years so you know in the business world uh, we're going to have to start thinking as intensely about this as people are doing on the front line when they're trying to grow tomatoes. Mm -hmm. It's going to be mostly about our attitude and our ethics. Beautifully said. Um, thank you for sharing that definition. One of my favorite things about getting to talk to people that, that live in this way is hearing 
how they reflect that and how they live that in your life. And so thank you, Joshua, for everything you've shared today. And I also want to close with where can people, how can people support what you're doing? Where can people find Rewild Organics? Um, what's the best way to connect? Well, rewildorganics.org is where we're, we're getting our value-added goods out to the world. They can contact us through, through Rewild's website or get directly in touch with me. Um, at Black Sheep Regenerative Resource Management is the tool we're building to, to help expand all this. And we're looking for everyone from customers that want to have well-sourced ingredients, like people that are making yummies in the North right now, please contact us and let's grow your vanilla for you. Um, and on the other side, I'm, I'm looking for the partners that have resources in the world that want to be part of this leverage investment model we're building. And so we're looking for people that want to invest or collaborate right now on uh, the processing things we spoke about, helping small farms in our area have access. We also are looking for partners that want to do things like carbon correctly. So I would love people to get a hold of me through Joshua at weareblacksheep.org is my email address. Um, and we've got, we've got a plethora of Instagram accounts and stuff. People can go check out what we do on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, if anybody out there wants to come and do yoga in the jungle and plant some trees with us, they can visit us at verdenergia.org, which we probably put in the, yeah. maybe we could put in the notes so people don't have to try and spell that. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I'll, I'll link everything. But, uh, in the totally happy, totally happy to have young you know people come and and participate with us and fall in love with the jungle with us. So, so come down here, plant some trees. Come down here, do some yoga in our studio, and then eat some uh, jackfruit with me. Um, and and we can figure this out together. And I, I I really mean that for you and your crew too. I'd love to have you all down here and and uh, enjoy the jungle and go out and get some footage of this. What's happened here? Because it's it's quite amazing when you go just a couple hundred meters from here and see the deforestation still how quickly this can work which for my personality type it works there's so much rain it works so fast that uh i want more people to feel it so come visit us at verdenergia please support us buy some of our golden milk if you could at rewildorganics.org and it goes right into these farming communities so thank you so much Paige, for helping amplify this and synthesize this and the work you've done and do all the time I'm grateful for that. It can feel a bit alone on the front line of this work. So I've, I've been integrating and, and collaborating more with folks like you because I, I, we're not alone. Yeah. There's lots of us trying and we need, to, we, need to, we need to work together. Well, thank you, Josh. It was so inspiring. We'll link all of your businesses and, and ventures in the show notes so that people can find you and try the golden milk. It's the most beautiful, vibrant thing you've ever seen. So thank you all. Have a beautiful day. tuning into today's episode. If you liked what you heard, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you want to learn more about how to get involved with The Circle, visit us at our website or on social media. We're always looking for like-minded people to connect with.